What's up, guys? My name's Scotty Evanett, and this is Heston Russell, and we are on the Voice of Veteran podcast, and I have an epic topic to talk about today, my friend. All right. Hit me with it. Culture. Uh Uh It's a big topic. So can you shed some light on culture? And there's different levels of culture, and we're going to get into that, I'm sure. But um, specifically, the latest one that just hit the, uh, the media. Media today, I think, you know, at the moment, culture, culture's always been a hot topic. You know, I got out of the military at the start of last year and actually quickly established that two of the key skill sets I could bring, one was actually being professionally trained as a leader and two, my sort of understanding of culture. Like I told you, mate, as you know, the last couple of years I was allocated to the Special Forces Training Centre and as a part of that, 2016 was restructuring our selection course to develop um, ways and we the ways in which we wanted to quantify and and assess and draw out emotional intelligence and character attributes as opposed to too much um, reliance on those physical attributes and there's a huge body of work there but culture you know we've got the the burden report saying that there was this culture of cover-ups and even at the end of the burden report there's a an ethical leadership study and this warrior culture dirty phrase what does what does that I mean can, to I you i was going to ask you like i think there is a lot of um misunderstanding with the word culture anywhere because you and me have both walked in, worked in the corporate sector and you and me both share the same history in special operations yep. and i think that word is it's got a different view for every single person that says it absolutely culture and leadership are two very easily and very lazily used things in order to in my opinion mainly affix blame or um, basically just uh, provide excuses for things. You know, I've spoken to you before about you know leadership and being a leader. The elements of being a leader are authority, leadership, and management. And the most laziest form of leadership is simply relying on authority. Mm. And the same goes for culture. You know, simply culture is actually a byproduct of leadership. Culture is the environment through which a leader creates that aligns and motivates people's personal ethos and values yep. to the mission and to the purpose. And where culture goes awry is because there's been a breakdown of leadership. People don't understand why they're doing what they're doing. So then how they do it, their personal conduct, if it's not already aligned to the values of that culture, goes awry. And I was going to say that that's a shared value list, right? Yeah. So those those values are known to the team or known to the environment, right? Absolutely. It's shared and it's agreed to and it's accountable to. It's like and a set of rules. Where right. we come from, you know... You, you know it yourself, mate. I want to dive this into you as well. I, I keep talking about that time in 2012 where the true test of culture is in crisis. And, you know, I, my deployment in Afghanistan in 2012, 67 missions over a five-month period, the equivalent of one every second day going out. And as you know, mate, we didn't go out on pleasant patrols. We, we went out to capture and kill known insurgents into places where we had lost commando warriors beforehand. Uh, where we had threats that were both seen and unseen and, and changed between the blink of an eye and watching the guys go out there and do that and do so in a way where they never feared for their own lives because they knew each other had their back because they knew why they were doing what they were doing was bigger than them and getting to see that agreed set of values that wasn't spoken it was practiced practiced exactly and you're drilled in it through your commando selection process so you know what's coming yep. you don't even you, you're assessed on whether you have those values but there's also a set of values um and responsibilities with the unit that you're trialing for right and then you get selected so that just ingrains it even more absolutely i want to i would definitely want to jump onto that and i just want to 
this warrior culture piece, we're trying to we're trying to demonize this word warrior culture, and you know, yeah, it feels I'll, like I'll, it's getting negative. I'll be damned if I allow the future generations of Australians to believe that anything to do with a warrior culture is terrible. You know, mm. we need we need warriors, and the modern warriors. You know, we have our defence force talking about the strategic soldier. The modern warriors know how to be a warrior on the front line, and also a warrior back home, a warrior of the hearts and minds, and a warrior of the physical and mental campaign as well. Uh, and we're really starting to get so black and white and in, in one-dimensional in that. We're not actually giving our soldiers, sailors, airmen and women and officers the um, respect that they can actually appreciate that they know how and when to apply these things. And where culture goes awry is because leadership has not been effectively practised or held accountable. And we are seeing that in this report, in this Burton report, we are seeing breakdowns of culture and at the same time, we are seeing recommendations that state that the senior hierarchy did not know what was going on the ground and happily accepted as such recommendations. And as a leader, if you want to know what is happening on the ground, you find out. Right. You hold yourself accountable because you are accountable to those that you are accountable for. Now, when you start to say that there are breakdowns of culture, it has to come back up to you. And when you start reaching down to try and inject changes into that culture from your perception up above, you've already lost it because... Culture permeates from leadership by example from the top yep. and then is absorbed from the bottom and it should meet. And where it doesn't, there is a misalignment of values, yep. there is a discrepancy in the purpose and there is a lack of accountability well, culture somewhere. Culture isn't something that can be cultivated overnight either. Culture is something that it takes practice and it takes management of, right? Yeah. So you can't just make a change and flick a switch and have this cultural injection, whether it be positive or negative. Well, the most dangerous thing you can do is try and conduct overnight patchwork to yeah. culture. You know, the amount of times I walked into a cor corporate space giving a talk and said, hey, who here wishes that they could buy culture? If I said, hey, we'll give you a perfect culture, how, how big would that checkbook be? You could imagine, yeah. you know, the number one issue that people face in business is actually not the, um, their, their, their performance as their professional performance. It's the conduct of those doing so. And, you know, just forsaking, uh, sorry, just putting the value in the results and not how you got those results is where culture breakdowns. We've seen that from the biggest legal firms through to any, any system in place. There's been a lack of accountability or indeed care on how they achieved the outcomes just as far as the outcomes. And, mm. mate, this is what we saw in Afghanistan for over a decade. Mm. As I've stood up and stood before, we were measured on how many bad guys we removed from the battle space, how many people we killed, how many networks we disrupted, who was there focusing on how we were doing or even why we were doing that. As all these questions come about, why were we in Afghanistan? We know... What we did was effective. How that occurred has been found to have been not even known by the majority of people who were there, and they're wondering why we're now having these issues and trying to fix this blame to this See a culture. Bit of you want your cake and eat it too, because in one way, Australians are seen as some of the best special operators in the world, right? And you can you can ask that that it's our culture and our you know, habits within that culture that we practice yes. that make us very unique to other soldiers on the battlefield. Yet that same tool, that culture that sharpens us as special operators can be seen or is being saying at the moment that it's the rot or it's the negative side of it. It's like, well, do you want the best soldiers on the battlefield or do you want, you know, what, what do you want really? Absolutely, mate. You know, our, our sunburned country land is sweeping planes by the nature of our Australian culture we are actually a more resilient people. Mm. And at the moment, and the reason why I really want to step up to this conversation with you is because 
our, our, our military and particularly within our special forces world, I, I hold my hand on my heart knowing that they truly are some of the very best representatives of our Australian people and should be uh, excelling in those careers outside of defence. And as we've spoken about, you know, that's that whole transition piece where people like yourself and myself were able to almost fall through the cracks. And at the moment, you know, I am able to stand up and just sit, literally apply those things that I was taught through my professional military training about the value of making sure that individuals feel value, have vision and purpose, and being able to demonstrate uh, authenticity by example. I'm already being able to provide some hope to those people who are watching and listening because the conversations are real um, and the, the need is very real. And the Australian public has this bottled up support for our veteran community. And the Australian public actually knows what is and isn't culture. And what I want to really make sure is that these conversations such as attacking our military warrior culture without leadership as the ultimate accountability and byproduct of that, through to um, the article in today's paper talking about the plan forward in order to remove this alpha maleism from special forces is to put more females in there. And, you know, this is a subject that a lot of people will shy away from, mate, but I, I, I need your help pulling this out of me here because back in 2016, I... We've uh, got some... Got some notes. Need to stay on, stay on topic here. No, back in 2016, uh, I I came back from a year um, the previous year working over within the US Special Forces, where their Rangers actually the 75th Ranger Regiment actually opened up their selection course to females for the very first time, um, and it was incredible to be a part of that. We are talking a hyper alpha male society mm. over there, you know, so much so that I was there in a giant town hall meeting with about 500. Rangers, including, you know, the regimental sergeant major and all these other, you know, warrant officer class one equivalents. And I remember one of them standing up at the end of this very lengthy discussion where they decided that they weren't going to change any standards. They were going to select people based on their merits, which is what yep. their what their requirements were, and we'll get into that later. But this guy stood up and said, you know, right, we'll happily have these women in as long as they meet the standards, but be damned if we're going to let any homosexuals get into our unit because, you know, we can't trust them. And it's just huge to yeah. see these different cultural differences and, you know, it was for me sitting there just yeah. silently as the only Australian, it was absolutely fantastic. And then I came back the next year and next thing, um, we were tasked to change the Special Forces selection course, particularly the Commando selection course. And that was because we were really starting to transition away from operations in Afghanistan. And for, for those who don't understand, the thing that I really love about the Special Forces selection course process, course process is it's the ultimate activity and backcasting. So the Special Forces Selection Course has evolved every single year and needs to do so mm. because at the end of the day, what you're trying to do is select the right person who can then be trained yeah. in order to achieve the ca operational capabilities that are required at the end. So for example, we had high-level operations in Afghanistan doing what we were doing. Then you have the tactical skill sets you need individuals within a commando team and officers within commanding, leading and planning to do so. Then you have the qualification courses in order to level up to uh, the, the standard of training required for those people to do that. Then you have the physical requirements that we have learned through multiple, multiple combat deployments and also in partnership with people like the Australian Institute of Sport and other professional civilian agencies to develop and understand those physical attributes that we need and put that into physical testing so as we could ensure that we were picking the right people who could last physically. Mm. And then even on the selection course, again, working with the AIS and also with the uh, Defence Health Protocols, figuring out what precursor activities such as the webbing run, 
the pack march we, and the swim, we needed these people to achieve so as we could change the uh, work-rest ratios in hot and cold weather to enable us to be able to conduct the activity. And then at the same time, we're able to look at the type of person and how their behaviour was along that. Things like in the commando team, teamwork, responsibility, accountability, officers, you know, those leadership criteria. And I can't list them all because it's the IP of the Special Forces (laughs) Training Centre. But we would literally have this report card of the person we needed from physical attributes and the first few days were spent doing that testing to make yeah. sure that we weren't going to break them and could legally conduct It's methodical. What I'm training. hearing is so precise. It's precision. It was incredible, mate. Through to every single activity you do on the selection course, I was the officer in charge. I was the, the chief instructor of the selection course. Okay, as a, as a major, I had all my team, all the NCOs, all these other officers supporting. Every single activity had a purpose, a premeditated purpose beforehand. Some of those were physically fatiguing because we needed to break down people physically before we could test them and expose them mentally and more so emotionally. Yeah. But you'd have an activity like, hey, you are to sort out this 10-kilo bag of brown white rice and white rice into separate piles, you know, and you would start putting some Tell other... Tell me, you are looking for personality traits of these people who will fit the, the known culture of the unit, right? People who work well with people by precision choice, right? This is all part of it. So you can't just make a little change over here or try and sprinkle a little bit of dust over here to, to, to fix the culture. It's from inception of this planning precision all the way through to selection, all the way through to unit, practice throughout the unit. Like you're talking, it is the DNA of what special forces and special operators know. Well, absolutely. It's it's. It's the actually, it's the hardest level of leadership and culture. It's actually critically analyzing and arguing and defending and arriving on why you're doing what you're doing. Mm. So you would have some fantastic guys like yourself and all these other operators who are coming with these awesome ideas of how to basically stuff people over on the selection course to help draw out some of these attributes. But before we ever agreed to any task, and I signed off on any task in the risk assessment, it's like, why are we doing this task? What are we assessing? How does that match the attributes we want? Yep. And same time, whenever anything changed overseas in our operational requirements, and particularly in 2016, we really needed to quantify a lot more emotional quotient testing because the two years before that, I'd spent bopping around Asia Pacific out of uniform, engaging with heads of mission and embassies and, and foreign nationals to discuss things that I needed to have military context for but couldn't bring any military alpha maleism to it. I needed to be an alphabetical male. I needed to influence and motivate and support an them. Al- alphabetical male. Tell, Alpha- tell we'll come more. back to that. No, we'll no, come- tell me more. Alphabetical male. Uh, so, just quickly, I, yeah, just I remember fine. I did my selection in 2010 and I remember in particular um, Cam Baird, VCMG, um, who uh, paid the ultimate sacrifice overseas. You know, he was, he was one of those just hardened warriors and he was tasked to get up in our face and, you know, really harped on about this alpha male piece because within the commando call sign, you know, you, everyone has an individual call sign. We never say names on the radios. You know, it's very tactically unsound, you know, as a part of maintaining our, our secret identities. So, but the alpha call sign is always the platoon commander. So I was November platoon and I was the alpha. So my call sign on the radio was November alpha. And a lot of people leapt onto that, like, you're the alpha, you know, you, do, you need to be in charge, you need to be the alpha male. And he's absolutely correct where, as the alpha, you have to be the leader, you have to be in charge from a responsibility place. 
And as I started to then helping out in the subsequent selection courses the next few years and then running it myself, I started to bring in this vernacular that is the alphabetical male because, you know, I was never going to be a bigger alpha male than Cam. My first mission in Afghanistan, I flew out with RS, Ben Robert Smith, VC, MG, and the, um, his company commander to go do a reconnaissance with the US ODA team. And, you know, this guy's six foot seven and, you know, just more experience than I've ever had. And I still had to conduct at my own level leadership and motivation and influence. Yep. And if I stood there trying to have a pissing contest being an alpha, alpha male. Alpha like, v alpha. What, what, is, mm. what is the outcome of that? The art of being a good leader, of being a true leader, is knowing how and when to follow but it, again, it all comes from that purpose that is the mission. You need your own level of negotiation and communication with an alpha male. So you well, need to be, and then you need to also have it with the number six. Well, you just need to be able to, hey, this is why we're doing what we're doing. Any of the conversations of how, including personal agendas or positioning, are wiped away as long as you demonstrate authentic leadership. And under, honestly, sometimes you just have to help educate people why they're doing things. Mm. Most times people aren't actually going to be adversarial if you fully explain to them what's going on. There might be difference of opinion, particularly in our community, it was fantastic. You know, you have so many out-of-the-box thinkers. But at the end of the day, it's like, hey, guys, look, this is what we've got to do. Um, yeah, that's cool. I, I like that um, analogy of it that you can have so much diversity and as long as the culture is strong, it, it wouldn't matter what colour, what shape, what, what anything is yeah. under that culture, it would still run smoothly, it would still operate as, as what it needed to Abs be. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the key thing for me is the... That, that is actually the hardest form of leadership. The hardest form of leadership is actually to take the time to help align people to understand intrinsically mm. why they're doing what they're doing. And in doing so, actually understand who they are, potentially what their motivations are in this, what their personal ethos and values are, so they feel valued along that process. The easiest form of leadership is unfortunately what we have seen lately is to stand up and stand behind your authority and wield it as a weapon of entitlement. You know, the easiest way people will say is, oh, you know, that's hard to do. Sometimes people just need to shut up and do what they're told. They do. But it's so much easier for them to do that when that comes from a bedrock of mutual respect because you've taken the time to actually teach a man to fish as opposed to telling him to catch that fish. And then when the same thing when you're talking about diversity. The easiest form of diversity is to focus on superficialities in order to assume that that will lead to diverse outcomes. Yep. And I faced this again 2016 with the selection course when I was told that we had to have a certain quota of females start the selection course. Now, honestly, for me, mate, the, the sky is blue and I am open to all conversations because one of the greatest realisations for me in this whole diversity conversation was actually where you came from, the Special Forces Direct Recruitment Scheme. Now, for those who've never heard of this before, um, the Special Forces Direct Recruitment Scheme is actually a program whereby people who have sufficient life experience can be put through an accelerated course off the street, uh, about a six-month period, in order to do the basic you training. You still have to do the same basic training once yeah. you get to um, your initial employment training. Then yeah. you can do an advanced employment training. So it's a bridging course to essentially upspeed you into three years, two, three years of worth what you would have got out of battalion. Yeah, and it's particularly focusing on the tactical acceleration. Yeah. As opposed to through the regular route through the army or the military, you had to do a minimum of three or four years service. And that was in order to have that assumed level of experience. And these guys were definitely at the same level of physical performance and tactical performance. But what they brought was a mindset that was diverse. They weren't indoctrinated through the regular military by numbers, one, two, three, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags, full process. And particularly as a tactical planner, some of the best ideas I would bring in some of my 
special forces direct recruitment scheme guys and be like, hey, we're going to do this. And they look at it like, well, why don't we get a shopping trolley and do this? And this is domestic <laughs> counterterrorism stuff. And you're sitting there like a military indoctrinated person does not think like that. Yeah. But this person and this person look exactly the same white Caucasian male commandos but the diversity in their outputs and the purpose behind the diversity that was incepted into the organisation had directly tangible uh, outcomes. So, mate, in 2016, um, we were instructed to bring females into the Special Forces selection um, and you had a specific quota that you had to meet. What were the direct and indirect um, responses to that? Yeah, or... So the direct response, I mean, the key thing is that women could actually apply all the time. Um, the immaturity in the selection course process was actually the uh, identification of appropriate roles for women within special forces. Um, if we wanted to be specific based on gender, the best thing I loved about the special forces selection course and indeed my majority of my career in the military was that uh, it all came down to your performance outcomes, you know, on the selection course, you could have black, white, Hispanic, Asian, any form of sexuality, any form of religion. The best thing about my entire military career, probably like you, mate, is that we're all the same on that uniform. We're all the same under that rising sun in the army, and you're all measured on that daily renewable contract on your performance. Absolutely. How often we use the, the words like subject, matter, uh, matter expert, right, the SME in that position would be brought down. It didn't matter what age, like even as a youngster, because I went in pretty young too, yep. even as a young um, person getting into the teams, if you were the SME in that specific role, whether it be you know, medically, I was medically trained, you know, so it's just like, hey, man, you're the SME, doesn't matter that you're 19, doesn't matter that you're 20, like you're the guy. Absolutely. And my, my key issue with this, and this is where I'm kind of horrified by reading things like the conversations about bringing any form of – individual discriminatory aspect into trying to fix culture, you know, let alone focusing on that in general, talking about warrior culture, these conversations about culture and fixing it with these patch-fixed solutions is actually the impact of those is more detrimental to culture. So, yeah. for example, in the, in the conversations about making mandatory quotas for women within the selection course back in 2016, there were so many, as you would know, within Tucumana, there were so many females who actually were our support staff from you know the legal officer the s1 through to within each and every company there were so many particular um specialist positions that were actually filled by females and i remember going and having conversations with them at the the mess or whatever and they were so outraged that first and foremost they were being undermined and essentially being um devalued by thinking that they needed to have a different Standard. See, mate, I like to think of myself as a bit of a, a logical thinker. And we talked about just before about the precision in in planning in which brings someone through the selection process. Wouldn't matter if they're male or female or any type, coming through that process, they would indo be indoctrinated in the current um, culture. Culture. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. So so they, they would become the culture. They would be the it would be the same culture with a female. Yeah, like it wouldn't matter. Well, the, that's it. And the, the immaturity in these conversations is not actually identifying that individuals are individuals. Yeah. And what we're actually trying to do is when you when you're selecting someone for culture, you're selecting them on their personal behavioural attributes, on their upbringing, indeed, on what values are solidified within their personal ethos. 
So I was showing you sort of beforehand, you know, you say you were selecting back in the day for the Army, courage, initiative, teamwork, respect. Those are the core values that you have established. Your organisation must have and people coming into your organisation must value. Mm. And you know what? That's the first thing you need to do when you're critiquing the um, performance, the behaviour of people entering into your organisation. Parallel to this is their performance outcomes. They need to be sort of qualified and competent in the job you want to come into. And again, we have those easy selection parameters for the selection course. But when we're starting to look at the other values that people hold to them, in addition to courage, initiative, teamwork and respect, you know, values either side of that, you know, leadership, determination, accountability, fitness, whatever, that is actually where you achieve diversity in culture. Mm. That is actually where you start to tap into that intrinsic motivation that people hold to them at their core spirit when their layers of physical and mental resiliency are torn away, where they have emotional attachment. And that's actually where you get diversity in behaviour. Yep. Diversity in performance is absolutely mapping people from different works of professional life, different exposures. And we all live such different lives, already all diverse um, by design, unless you literally have walked in the exact same path of someone else, even then biology says otherwise. But as soon as you start to then focus on things that people don't have control of, superficiality such as gender, sex, skin colour, mm. you actually start to cause divides within culture. Because again, like I was saying before, when I spoke to the women already supporting within the unit who themselves would like to do selection course, they felt that any achievements they had would potentially be undermined by establishing a quota and not allowing them to achieve their results on their own merit. And it was the exact same thing for the two female candidates that I had attempt the selection course that year. They did not want to be assessed against any other criteria. Mm, and nice. I think absolutely, and to their absolute credit, and the worst thing you could ever do is to accelerate them beyond others who would achieve better than them because first and foremost, you undermine any potential authority or indeed respect and you're doing it to them. They're not doing it to themselves. You're not actually helping them. You're hurting them. And same thing for that group, particularly when we are talking about, again, in the commando capability, but let alone in the army or the defense force, it is one big team within team within team. Yep. And you need to be as a part of a team. And unfortunately, what we're seeing is those individuals at the senior officer level standing up in front of the Australian public who forgot leadership a long time ago and took it over with politics don't understand culture and apply the lazy brush of casting assertions such as generalizations in warrior culture. What about going back to the source of this entire conversation anyway? Like they've seems like they've pinned the actions of a few on the entire culture. Right? Yeah. So whereabouts is that, you know, drawn where they're like, okay, this is a cultural issue that has caused this at its maximum effect, right? Cultural issues Maybe. I mean, that's it's up for grabs anyway, but yeah. that, that, that the cultural issues have caused murder or is it the actions of a few and a completely different mentality outside of the culture that has caused these things? Like yeah, absolutely. The, the actual issue is that the culture was allowed to conduct its gradual progression of standard deviation from what was deemed to be now uh, unacceptable. Um, and I don't say that with regards to the allegations. I say this with regards to a lot of other things that were brought out, such as the culture of um, hiding things from other, the, the toxicity competition between the units. And we've already addressed those sorts of things. And the failure in culture is actually what the Australian public are now seeing, unfortunately, by a large number of our defence representatives, by um, trying to cast and blame this culture of seven years ago and take actions here and now by denying Australians their democratic right to have due process and be assumed innocent until proven guilty. And that's why 
the military and the government have seen such huge outrage from the Australian public because they are values and a culture that do not sit with the Australian public. The Australian public supports mm. our democratic rights. The Australian public supports our personnel until they are proven guilty. The Australian public does not accept abdication of leadership at the top level while still wearing accolades. So what is actually the kickback now being seen is actually true Australian culture that yeah. underpins all of us <laughs> yeah. being thrown back. And unfortunately, the, the, the senior hierarchy need to sit down and recalibrate themselves to be responsible in their leadership and actually understand what is um, the, the true high performance level of culture, not these, these lazy general assertions. You know, we unfortunately did a disservice and I believe lost a few of those women who, you know, we didn't need to put through the entire Special Forces selection course and the entire reinforcement cycle. We didn't need some of those people. I didn't even, even for example, mate, my, my SIG, my medic and my JTAC, you know, I didn't need them to be fully beret qualified commandos. I needed them to be amazing SIGs, medics and JTACs. I needed them to undergo the rudimentary level of training in order to ensure that their own force preservation and also look after my back while I was running around was required. But in the last couple of years where I was at the regiment, they changed the um, ECN grading qualifications that there were no more of these non-qual positions. And if yeah. they wanted to stay, they had to go and do selection course. And, you know, I had – my SIG was fantastic and he always wanted to go do the selection did, course. Did that end up leaving, um, leading to, like, a lack of those job role specifics like manning? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. were, there, were there less and less positions being filled when you needed more capability? Absolutely. And what happened was there was actually the, – the ramifications of that were actually, like, they lost pay and allowances. Mm. There was a whole restructuring. But I, I said to him, he could have passed the selection course, you know, and mm. he was just – he was the right guy and he was so good at what he did. And I was like, it would have taken him a whole year to go and do that selection course and training. And I just had to sit down and said, hey, mate, you can do this and you have my whole blessing, but the capability I need right here and now is you as my SIG. You know, we're about to deploy overseas, we're about to do this. And how sad is it that we got to a system that was that focused on superficialities, even in qualifications that were irrelevant to operational outcomes, that we were forcing these sort of decisions and having these ruptures within our, our culture, let alone mm. when all of a sudden we're starting to say, right, the fix is we need to have this many women. Like, are we going to say we need this many gay people, this many, this, you know, this, 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 these are, yeah. we, we can go into these conversations where I... Where's that been trialled? Because I'm, a, like I said, I, I think logically, like where is that alpha male culture being injected with females to a success that we're modelling off? Or is this just someone's like pluck of an idea and we'll give it a go? The issue for me is, mate, we're focusing on what we're doing, not why we're doing it. Yeah. This is what I have really appreciated even in 2020 in the Australian society. We have moved through so and worked through and uncovered so many things we've had to work through from Black Lives Matter movements in the US here in Australia, you know, appreciating that poor people need to be treated equally. Then all of a sudden what we continue to default back to is looking for these superficialities, discriminating factors, and trying to say that we need to focus on them more in order to achieve what I call lazy diversity. We actually need to focus on the true fabric, the emotional fabric, the, the values and the ethos of individuals and how we put them together, how we apply intelligent leadership and actually develop these people up to being a, a culture and a capability that is looking forward, not left and right and looking for differences. The true leadership and the true test of culture is aligning people on purpose, not on what they're doing and how they're doing it with each other, but why they're doing it. And as you know, mate, be that personal resilience. When you know why you're doing something out on a mission, you know, if you roll your rankle, if, you know, you are hungry, if you're tired, if you're fatigued, you don't worry about those small things that impact you because you're worried about 
supporting the team and supporting the mission. Yeah. Same goes with culture. I if you're getting people to focus on their individual aspects, then you're starting to cause a divide back down here. I tell you what, I'm going to add this last little bit in here. Sure. What I'd, I'd love to see, and whether it's a cultural fix or not, but I just some more focus on this cultural element, is it being so strong that those it continues post-military service? Because <laughs> what I see going wrong and I've felt – you know, myself after after um, a life in the military, is that a lot of those cultural things turn from a good thing to a bad thing out here, right? The way that you are with your team on that side of the fence versus when you're out of the team, it being a bad thing because those same things that normally uphold how, you know, how you turn up, how, you know, your, your skill levels and everything are addressed just – well, totally changes out here. Absolutely. Like, it, what I'm seeing at the moment is defence creating problems where there are none. The Australian society is actually already accepted. You know, everything from gay, lesbian, transgender, everything else in between, um, equal rights for men and women, and there's still a lot of work to be done there. But what I really felt as a society in 2020, we are starting to push past so many of these superficial boundaries. And then all of a sudden I'm reading these things where, again, we're looking at a report from seven years ago and putting towards solutions today that focus on discriminating factors of individuals as opposed to individual performance, behaviour and individual culture, ethos, values. You know, we're not providing intelligence to it, we're providing potential knee-jerk reactions to it. And that's where I actually see defence should be leading Australia in our performance, in our conduct, in our culture and what we do. And there's always work to be done because, again, defence is where you really get exposed to that hyper-life-and-death type stuff and that's where true, you know... Um, true colours can be shown individually and collectively. And if, if we are sort of taking a step back in defence by telling the Australian public that the fix for our culture is to focus on discriminating factors that aren't even of people's choice, you know, how it, we've already been divisive in the Australian public. And we've already seen that. We've yeah. already seen the rift. Our senior commanders have caused in the release and handling of this Burton report with the Australian public. I just I don't want to see it, I don't want to see it continue. I want to see common sense prevail. And I want people to actually appreciate we're already there. Stop focusing on things that you're actually turning into problems. Yeah, for sure. Any further notes on culture? I think that's it, mate. <laughs> it's such <laughs> it's it's a huge go, yeah huge conversation. I think the key thing for me is wanting to help people understand culture and leadership. There are different layers and levels to it. The laziest thing is to try and look to find labels and solutions. Um, from the bottom up and the top down and rely on authority as opposed to uh, leadership by action, practising what you preach, understanding that individuals are emotionally regulated and need to feel valued. And the best thing you can do for any culture is align people to a true and authentic purpose and hold yourself and them accountable along the way and lead by example. When, until we start focusing on outputs you know, as opposed to inputs, you know, we're going to be stuck with a mess in the middle. Couldn't agree more. There you go. Good hustle. Thanks for the chat, Scotty. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Voice of a Veteran podcast. We really hope that there were some key takeaways that might help you be they relatable, be they aspirational, but we're not just here for your entertainment. So please make sure you remember, move on and action from here. And that's it, guys. If you've heard something here today that has truly helped you, it's our duty to share that information with as many as we can. Support is about being proactive, and that's taking action to better our own lives as well as the lives of as many mates as we can. We love your support getting these messages out, so please subscribe. Go to our YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Voice of a Veteran. Catch you next time. See ya.